This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Pyramid When you think about it, there are a few things more dangerous in the Dungeons & Dragons universe than a dead body. Actually, this seems to be universally true across all fantasy universes. From the Inferi guarding Lord Voldemort's Horcrux to the Barrowrites that imprisoned Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin, if there's one thing we know about dead bodies in magical universes, it's that they are rarely peaceful. And with its categorical listings of monsters built up over 40-plus years and five editions, plus supplements, there are restless dead for everything. You can find violently territorial corpses based on everything from burial method to method of death, from the disposition of the deceased to the stage of decomposition. And if you get bored waiting for the dead to start walking and killing on their own, there are a host of spells and miracles that will entice a recalcitrant corpse into getting the heck up and murdering itself some heroes. Given that, it's actually kind of strange that the peasantry of fantasy worlds even keep the bodies around. Why are there so many cemeteries, tombs, barrows, burial mounds, sepulchres, mausoleums, crypts, catacombs, pyramids, and necropoli dotting the landscape, just waiting to spew undead on unsuspecting innocents, or to serve as a recruitment station for a necromantic army? But then, you might wonder the same thing about humans in the real world. Why do we bury our dead, or entomb them, or otherwise inhume them? Why not just burn them? After all, that's what practitioners of the Hindu faith do. And they have been doing that throughout the entirety of Indian history. At least the privileged were. Around about the time Hinduism had spread pretty far across the Indian subcontinent and was becoming deeply entwined with the social, political, and economic lives of its people, it was common practice for the affluent to be cremated when they passed away. The ashes were then buried under a stupa, a memorial shrine. Those who could not afford cremation, along with all the rites and rituals associated with it, would instead be left exposed for scavenger birds to pick apart. At the same time, some elderly faithful who preferred to choose their own time would have themselves rowed into the middle of the sacred Ganges River. Then they would jump in and allow themselves to be carried away. These funeral rites and rituals are collectively antiesti, a Sanskrit word which means last sacrifice. And it is part of the Samara, the cycle of death and rebirth that underlies the Hindu faith. The soul, they believe, is eternal. And after death, it is reborn again into the material world. Now this isn't exactly a desirable thing. See, samsara comes from the Sanskrit word for aimless drifting or wandering without purpose. And that's the general view of material life in the Hindu faith. It's a repeating cycle of being reborn, living a mundane existence, dying and doing it all again. The goal is to achieve purity of the soul and by doing so break the cycle. Instead of being reborn, the soul becomes one with Brahma, a reality of unchanging immortal blissful existence. As for the Antiesti themselves, the funeral rites, they are based on the idea that the body is composed of five elements. Wind, water, fire, earth, and void. Once the soul has departed, the body must be returned to its base elements. And this is spelled out in the Rig Veda, one of the sacred Hindu scriptures. There, the faithful are instructed to commit the body to fire, 
or to water or the natural world. Eventually, though, cremation becomes the preferred method, even for the less affluent, and it became a basic right of all Hindu individuals to be cremated on their deaths. But in this, Hinduism is actually a rare exception. The vast majority of human cultures across the span of history seem to prefer the burial of the body to its own destruction. The preservation and reverence of the body after death seems to be ingrained into our humanity. In fact, it seems to be ingrained into something even more primitive than humanity, because even our ancestors and cousin species seem driven to entomb their dead. The story begins in 1856 in a quarry in Dusseldorf, Germany, where a group of workers dug up some unusual bones. They looked almost ape-like, but not quite. They definitely shared an ancestor with Homo sapiens, with human beings, but they were a distinct and primitive species. And so they were named Neanderthal. That's an old Germanic name that means Valley of Neander, where the discovery took place. And note our correct pronunciation. The TH in THAL is pronounced as a hard T. For a long time, anthropologists assumed that the Neanderthals resembled apes, walking with stooped posture and bent knees. But then, in the 1950s, in the Shandiar Cave in Kurdistan in northern Iraq, everything changed. There, Ralph Selecki of the Smithsonian Institute and a team of anthropologists from Columbia University discovered the fossilized remains of eight adult and two infant Neanderthals. Their discoveries revealed that Neanderthal was actually smarter and more culturally sophisticated than previously assumed. They walked upright and they used tools. But perhaps, most shockingly of all, these 65,000-year-old corpses seem to have been intentionally buried in the cave. There were archaeological signs of injuries and that the injuries had been treated and there was fossilized flower pollen found in the site that indicated that the corpses had been laid to rest with flowers. Yes, these 65,000-year-old Neanderthals had received first aid for their injuries, and then, when they passed away, they were laid to rest and adorned with flowers. Of course, the Neanderthal story does have a sad ending. 33,000 years ago, the Neanderthal tribes were forced to leave their homelands in Central Europe as glaciers spread south during an ice age. They flourished for several thousand years in Spain, Portugal, and Gibraltar, but eventually they died out, unable to adapt to changing climate and compete with another primitive hominid, the Cro-Magnon. Interestingly, Selecki's discoveries inspired writer Jean M. Owl to write the first novel in her famous Earth's Children series of novels set in prehistoric Europe. The novel, The Clan of the Cave Bear, tells the tale of a young Cro-Magnon girl who is adopted by a tribe of Neanderthals. The book was a bestseller, and it allowed Owl to travel the world, visiting various archaeological sites, and meet many experts in the field and she received an official commendation from the French government for her work in 2008. Unfortunately, the 1986 film adaptation starring Daryl Hannah did not fare so well. It was an utter flop, making back only one-tenth of its budget. Incidentally, any Chrono Trigger fans out there might be interested to know that the young Cro-Magnon woman's name was Ayla, and Daryl Hannah had a mane of back-length blonde hair. Sound familiar? But we digress.
The point is, funeral and burial rites are so human that they even predate humanity. In Israel, tombs have been uncovered that predate the Neanderthals of Shanidar. And in Europe, the oldest human burial site so far discovered belongs to a fossil nicknamed the Red Lady of Paviland. The red part of that comes from the fact that the fossil was stained red from natural clays in the limestone cave in which she was entombed. She was also laid to rest with shells, ivory rings, and other small trinkets that were similarly stained, indicating they had been with her at the time of the burial. As human faiths and spiritual beliefs became more complicated, so too did the methods of burial. In 5000 BCE, in ancient Mesopotamia, the Sumerian people developed some particularly interesting beliefs and rites. The Sumerians believed in an afterlife, see, a land of the dead. But it was not above, it was below. Like the Greeks, the Sumerians believed in three basic realms, the realm of the earth, where mortals lived, the heavens, where gods lived, and the underworld, where the dead belonged. They believed that it was wrong to burn the bodies of the dead, lest their souls rise with the smoke into the heavens and end up where they didn't belong. Instead, the proper thing to do was to bury the dead so the soul could make its way underground to the realm of Ereshkigal. Often, the dead were buried near their family homes so their graves could be maintained. It was believed that an ill-maintained grave could lead to a vengeful spirit returning and haunting the family. In extreme cases, Sumerian ghosts could enter a living person's ear and possess them, causing havoc. And this might sound somewhat similar to the ancient Greek practices we discussed in our episode about Elysium. For the Greeks also had elaborate funeral rites and believed that maintaining the memory of the dead was extremely important for a peaceful afterlife. But for elaborate burial practices, nothing compares to the ancient Egyptians. Heck, when you think about ancient Egypt, you probably think about mummies and pyramids. In other words, the most enduring imagery about ancient Egypt is how they treat their dead. In order to understand their burial practices, you have to understand a bit about what the ancient Egyptians believed. Egyptians thought that the afterlife was actually an eternal life that reflected the life they had known in, well, in life. The only difference was that the eternal afterlife version of life would be free of suffering, disease, and of course, the threat of death. Basically, it was a peaceful, normal life of eternal bliss. It's just that it wasn't very easy to obtain. And you still had to go to work, so you didn't get to enjoy all of it. Let's take this one step at a time. When you died, your soul departed your body. So far, so good. And it would begin a very long, complex journey. Along the way, Anubis, the jackal-headed god, would help. But in order to make the journey, the soul would have to know all sorts of magical spells and rituals and rites to deal with the various ordeals the soul would face. Fortunately, if you were an Egyptian, you could get an instruction manual that would help you make the trip. Many excerpts from the many different versions of this book exist, some dating back to 1700 BCE, but there is no one canonical version. The title has been variously translated as The Book of Coming Forth by Day or The Book of Emerging Forth into the Light. But today, it's usually just called The Book of the Dead by scholars. And it details everything a soul needs to know to get from here to the hereafter. Now, The Book of the Dead and various other funerary texts derived from it 
evolved a great deal during the long history of the kingdoms of Egypt. So we're just discussing some of the highlights from the middle and late versions of the book. Utilizing spells, passwords, and secret knowledge from the Book of the Dead, the soul would eventually come to the shore of the Lake of Flowers. And there, it would be rowed across and presented to Osiris, the god of the dead, in the Palace of Truth, and his judges. There, Osiris would weigh the heart of the deceased against the weight of a single feather. If the heart was heavy with sin, then the soul would be cast out. But, if the heart was light and pure and weighed less than the feather, the deceased would pass into the field of reeds to live out an eternal life of pastoral bliss. Now, that seems simple enough, except for the part where you need to remember a complicated set of magical spells and instructions after you're dead. But there's more to this story. See, to the Egyptians, the soul was very complicated. In fact, it came in nine parts. And these parts would come undone during the complex passage into the afterlife. And worse, these parts would forget what the other parts looked like. But as long as the body remained whole, the parts of the soul could come back together. Now, the Egyptian practice of preserving the corpse, that is, mummification, became very involved and advanced. And it was done to ensure your soul would come back together, your heart would be intact, and that you would stay together for eternity. The practice probably grew out of the simple fact that the Egyptians noticed that when they buried their dead in the desert sands, the bodies didn't break down or decompose. Thus, they must have concluded that the body had to stay whole for some important reason. And so, they gradually developed various embalming practices to keep the body whole. Those processes included a tar-like substance called moom, which is why their embalmed dead were called moomies or mummies. And the wealthy and affluent could afford very elaborate embalming practices. The poorest of the poor had to rely on linen wrappings and simple materials purchased from the temple to hopefully keep their beloved dead's bodies together. They were often forced to use old clothes to shroud their dead. This became known as cladding the dead in the linen of yesterday. But it isn't the mummification you want to hear about. After all, the word of the week is pyramid. And the pyramids of Egypt were just big tombs, vaults to hold the dead. And more importantly, their stuff. And most importantly, their dolls. Remember that bit about how the Egyptians figured your afterlife was pretty much just like your normal life, but without the bad parts? Well, that wasn't just metaphorical. That was a pretty literal belief. If you wanted to enjoy your afterlife and live in luxury, you'd need stuff comfortable furniture, money to buy more stuff, boats to go sailing and fishing in, a chariot to go out for long drives in, and so on and so on. After all, it was basically one big endless vacation. So the dead were always buried with stuff. Even the poorest of the poor were buried with some personal effects. It's kind of like packing for an infinitely long vacation. You'll need something to do. And the wealthiest of the wealthy who wanted to ensure their best possible afterlife, and who had plenty of stuff to take with them, and who wanted to ensure their bodies and memories would remain intact forever, who maybe wanted to earn a place among the gods themselves? They needed huge, elaborate tombs for all that stuff. And so, it became a symbol of wealth, status, and power for Egyptian kings to have the most impressive tombs imaginable. Thus, the pyramids. So how can you use all of this in- What? What? 
Oh, oh, right, right, the, the, the dolls. We mentioned dolls. The dolls were actually also really important to ensure that you had the best eternal vacation in the field of reeds. And everyone was buried with some dolls. Sometimes, lots of them. Why? Well, it comes down to the idea that the afterlife was a literal reflection of everyday life. And community service. See, as Egyptian culture was starting to really flourish, one of the major ideals of Egyptian life, ma'at, became central. Ma'at means giving back. It's the idea that you owed something to your community. The kings of Egypt would often call for great public works projects, and the citizens of Egypt would donate some of their time to working on those projects. In point of fact, many of the pyramids and monuments of Egypt we tend to assume were constructed by slaves were actually constructed by skilled craftsmen serving out a term of community service for the greater good. And the Egyptians assumed that Osiris, the ruler of the afterlife, would probably have the same sort of thing going on. The problem was, no one was really keen on giving up their time in the eternal bliss of the hereafter on some sort of public works project. Enter the Shabti doll. The Shabdi doll was a hand-carved figurine that was buried with the dead. The more, the better. Poor individuals might be buried with one. Kings would be buried with hundreds, one for every day of the year. The doll had to be purchased from a temple, and they were a bit like action figures in that they always came with accessories. Each Shabdi was equipped with tools that matched the deceased's skill or trade or craft, and the Shabdi had one purpose— to get you out of divine community service. Let's say you're a happy dead Egyptian, enjoying your afterlife in the field of reeds, partying with friends, and suddenly, Osiris calls you for community service. You recite a handy spell, one from the Book of the Dead, and one of your Shabti dolls would come to life and go to work for you. And you can continue partying. Now, the Shabdi dolls were interesting for two reasons. Well, interesting for two reasons other than the interesting fact that every dead Egyptian was buried with a magical action figure that would come to life to get them out of community service. First, everyone was buried with them. Some folks had more than others, and some were much nicer than others, but they show an interesting equality in death. Whether you were a wealthy king or a poor farmer, you were still expected to work for Osiris in the afterlife for the good of the cosmos and it was always according to your skill. Farmers would farm, kings would perform bureaucratic functions, weavers would weave, and so on. Second, for a brief period of time, a special type of Shabti doll appeared, an overseer doll. That doll was equipped with a whip, and it was generally in a pose implying the giving of orders. And these Shabti dolls would often be found alongside other dolls that seemed to represent laborers acting under the overseer's orders. During this period, known as the Third Intermediate Period, Egypt was in decline, its kings were losing power, and foreign powers were gaining influence, even occupying Egypt. Civil wars broke out. It was a rough time for Egypt. But then... As foreign powers lost influence and Egyptian culture had one last flowering under powerful native kings during the late period, the overseer Shabti and its laborers vanished from the tombs of kings. So, how can you use all of this in your game? Well, as we mentioned at the start, every world in which the dead can get out of their graves, get angry, and start killing has an implied plot hole. 
Why do the people of the world bury their dead like so many earth cultures and not simply destroy them like the Hindu peoples? Well, all of the various burial practices on earth evolved for spiritual reasons. And in Dungeons and Dragons, the spiritual is objectively, provably real. So what is it about the nature of life, death, and the afterlife in your world that requires a body? And what religious rituals exist to ensure that the dead spirits get where they are supposed to go and their bodies don't go off on regular brain-eating binges? Every major religion on earth has a reason for treating the dead the way it does. So should your D&D religion. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.